You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 11th of January. That's today. And on the programme today with timeshare deals and buyback deals making headlines already this year, we took a look at the property trends for 2024. That was with real estate expert Lewis Alsop and also mortgage broker Joe Phillips. Meanwhile, as conflicts crop up around the globe and with more than half the world set to go to the polls this year, what is the greatest threat for 2024? Well, we found out with John Scott, who is author of the World Economic Forum's Global Risks Report. Plus, the US is reaching for the moon for the first time in half a century. And on board the space rocket is work by the Dubai-based artist Sasha Jaffrey. He told us all about the importance of sending art to the lunar surface. And conservationists are up in arms after Norway gave permission for deep sea mining to go ahead. We found out why they consider it such a bad idea. And UK-based scientists have figured out how to power planes with biofuel made out of human faeces. Hmm, is it scalable? We found out with the CEO of Firefly Green Fuels. Plus, Chris McCarty brought us up to date with all the latest sporting news, including Rory McIlroy back in Dubai again. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Lovely to have you with us. And it is fair to say you could level the accusation, I suppose, that we do talk about property a lot on the radio here. But let's be honest, it's been a pretty extraordinary story over the last few years. I mean, ever since COVID-19, prices have just gone up and up and up. And although they are starting to show signs of slowing... um, You still had massive numbers in the third quarter of 2023. You had average villa and apartment prices increasing by nearly 20%. Now, that's just in in the third quarter of 2023, which is, uh, I mean, slightly dazzling. And then if you look ahead for forecasts uh, for 2024, they do vary. And I've got two experts in the studio who I'm going to ask them for their opinions. But value strat figures have suggested an increase of 5 to 7% for Dubai. And they're looking at around 3 to 5 percent in Abu Dhabi. Not bad for Abu Dhabi. Okay, so that's the prices. But what are the other trends in property for the next 12 months? Well, my aforementioned experts have indeed joined me in the studio. We've got Lewis Alsop, who is Group CEO of Alsop and Alsop. Good morning and Happy New Year to you. Good morning. Lovely to have you with us. We've also got Joe Phillips, who's Managing Director of Phillips and Walls Mortgage Brokers. Joe, lovely to see you. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year as well, Georgia. Two people in the studio. I'm going to get straight into it. Lewis, first up, do you agree with that for forecast for growth. It's a slower pace of growth. Do you think they're right at ValueStrat? I don't think that the growth of 20-30% a year is possible for affordability purposes, people wanting to buy. Um, So I think if we're getting 5-7%, to everyone should be happy with that. Um, I honestly think it's nearly impossible prices to come down. Uh, it's nearly impossible. And this is the, you know, I was late today to come here. I've literally just walked through the studio. And why? Traffic. Oh there my gosh, so it's so bad. There is so many people. It's so I bad. mean, look at the announcements at the moment. How many people, how many times are the government announcing a new road is expanding? And there's a reason for it. Um, so all these launches that are happening, they're not handing over for three years. These people need somewhere to live. So the pressure on tenants 
and uh, buyers is crazy at the moment. I'm going to get into that delivery of houses a little bit later in our conversation because we're all waiting for the delivery of all these developments. Joe, what do you think about that rate of growth? Five to seven percent for Dubai, three to five percent in Abu Dhabi. Would that be your forecast for 24? I agree with Lewis on that completely. Yeah. Um, I think that you know, saying 20, 30 percent, I think is a little bit out of out of range there. Yeah. Um, what we're seeing more and more of though is that people's wages aren't going up. So we're actually seeing that people are are struggling to get on the uh, property ladder because of the fact that the stress rates that the banks use are are still high. Mm. Even though rates are starting to come down slowly, we're still trying to find that, you know, middle ground where people can actually afford to buy the property. So five to seven percent, I think, is accurate. Yeah. So I think this might be one of the reasons why developers are having to get a little bit more clever about how they're pitching their, especially mm. their off-plan properties. Lewis, I want to ask you about some of the trends that I've seen mm. mentioned. Um, things like Dubai developers sort of mulling the option of buyback schemes mm. as part of their sort of off-plan launch offers. Yeah. This was new to me. Don't know what it is. How does it's it work? It's not new to me. It's not new to you. <laughs> no, no, no. I've been here since 2006. Okay. So this, oh, wow. Yeah. So I was selling the Burj Khalifa when there were stumps in the ground. Um <laughs> This is reminiscent of an era that you really don't want to get involved in. You won't see Imars and the Keels, Miras's get involved into this. I'm not going to get too deep into the business side of it, but a developer will generally net from their completion 30 to 50% profit at the end of their build, meaning that after marketing, salaries and costs, that's what they'll make. If you take Emar as an example, Emar did buyback guarantees. Go and tell me how, how much value they sold and then buy that back. That would bankrupt Emar. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, so, so, so we're talking billions. Um, it's not dodgy. It's what, they're, what they're trying to do is they're leveraging the profit of the market. So what they're forecasting is, okay, the market might go at 5 or 10%. And let's say as they said they're going to give you 10% return a year. They'll take your rental income of 5 to 7% and then they'll offer you some profit on top. But if the market turns, which it's not going to, by the way, it's not going to turn 2008 star, and that's another story. What you'll find is these people will disappear. I, I could name companies now that, and I'm not going to on radio, that are no longer here that offered this. And people are left saying, hey, where's my money? What is the guarantee? Where is the guarantee? And that there isn't one. It's, it's a sales tactic. So anyone listening to this, I would say stick to the good developers, stick to the well-known brands. Because if, if you go and look at the story for this, tell me who that developer is. I don't know the name of them. I'm pretty sure it will not be one of the top ones. So if it sounds too good to be true... It usually is. Always is. <laughs> it always is. Joe, these buyback deals, uh, you know, I mean, th- there's suggestions that Dubai developers might be reintroducing yeah. them. Can you get a mortgage on those? Can you get not any sort loan. of loan? No, no, because they're not completed. So, ah. you know, in terms of off plan, the only the only way that you can finance the mortgage is upon handover and completion. So basically, you know, you've got the payment normal payment structure where you've got like 70 70% payback uh, at handover and completion. Well, this is being offered after five years. So, you know, it's, it's they're still not built yet, mm-hmm. you know, and it's five years time. So it's not something that the, the, the even the lenders will look at at the moment. So, you know, it is a risk. And like Lewis said, checking fine print and everything like that, because what threshold do they go back on with, with the buyback? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you've got the buyback of, you know, um, say it sells, you buy for two million, it sells for three. Is there anything in the clause to say, well, if it goes above this, we, we, we will only go to this level? I mean, you the know? only way I would touch this, to be honest with you, and this is speaking high level business terms, if I was yeah. the land department, I would not let anyone launch that unless they said, 
okay, cool. You want to launch it? Hold that money in escrow. Yeah. Hold the hundred percent in escrow, and then you then I'd probably buy one because I'm like I'm guaranteed to make money. You can put money in fixed deposit and get five, six, seven percent. Mm. Someone's offered me hundred percent ROI on my money. I'm interested, but there is a reason that that is not real life. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, yeah. A, it's a reason. True, true. It's a reason it's not happening <laughs> yeah, for everyone. Exactly. Okay, how about another phrase that I haven't heard since the 80s uh, when lots of people in the UK got caught out? Mm. Timeshares. Yeah. Are they getting more popular? Do you know what? I used to turn my nose up at timeshares. I, I mean, my, I thought they've got a legacy kind yeah. of atmosphere Spanish, around them. Spanish, on my the mind. street, yeah, come yeah, and yeah. buy one. <laughs> one. But if you look at developments now, so there's some really cool developments launching in Ras Al Khaimah, and you can buy a branded residence in Ras Al Khaimah specifically, and we'll be launching one very soon, where you'd buy into the hotel, okay. and you can have it for 30 days a year. The other... 335, yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> they will, that is right, isn't it? 335 uh, plus 30, 365. I, yeah, I, I go for 11 yeah, months. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. yeah, you're right. Okay. So the 11 months, well, you do it easier version your way. Yeah, yeah I can't do maths like The that. hotel put it into the pool. Okay. So mm. it's effectively like a timeshare. And I think with Airbnb and these different avenues, I think it's definitely more possible. The old school way of rent it for a year, you receive your rent. People want more flexibility. So... I'm making money on the flexibility. So it, it's it's a different market now, I think. I suppose it's an opportunity to get on the property ladder if you haven't got a massive chunk of change. Yeah. It's, a, it's a way of getting in there. Again, you wouldn't be able to get a mortgage on that, though, would you? No, I mean, exactly. <laughs> I keep, I keep on these, they come up with these great deals. I'm like, okay, so where can I borrow the money? And Joe's like, you can't. Because it'll be, it'll be similar to how it is with the hotel apartment structure with the mortgages. You can't have, um, if you take a mortgage on, say, a hotel apartment, you have to be out of what's known as the hotel pool. Mm. Okay. So basically on that basis, it'll be pretty much the same. Someone's just written in saying a lot of the new communities are really well planned, mm -hmm. but they've got houses with very small rooms. And actually, I've noticed that about Arabian mm. Ranches 3. Mm -hmm. Is that a trend? Who's asked this question? Let's see if I've got a name. I haven't got a name yet. But who's asked the trend? Is that a trend, Lewis, do you think? Yes, it is. I think there's a trade-off. Uh, very controversial statement. But I think the new developments are completely outstripping the old developments. And what I mean by that is, I mean, I live in Jumeirah Golf Estates and I love Jumeirah Golf Estates, but you can go to Dubai Hills now and you can go to um, Talal Al Gaf and they've got lagoons and they've got these cool restaurants and cafes. And I think there's a lot more time put into these developments for family, family living. So I think, yeah, there is a trade off. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people are moving there for that, that purpose. Yeah, I mean, my brother lives out at Arabian Ranches 3. It's got a, it's got a, a what, what's it called? A, a wild river that goes all the way around lagoon. the compound. That's it, yeah. a lagoon. We'll like, call it could, wild river. You can call it wild, you could, it's a lagoon. <laughs> you could basically float around the entire community on a, on a rubber ring. Yeah. And, and that's really cool for the kids, you know, that's... that's Dubai quite, Hills has a beach they have a beach within here. the facility. So you've got your wave pool. And then, you know, even Town Square. So Town Square's a bit mm. further out. Uh, we, when my kids were really young, we used to take them there and they've got a splash pad, they've got football pitches, they've got ice cream vans, all the families gather there. So I think if you consider that and then you look at, let's say, the Springs or an Al Reem that are dated communities but really established, what you're finding is they're going to have to reinvest back into community to keep at the level that, that is out there now. That is interesting. There's a bit of a trade-off there. Mm, Do you definitely. pay a service charge if you're in the Springs? And, and yeah, like everybody, because obviously yeah. the upkeep of the development. 
Interesting. Right, we've got to go to a break, but we're going to come back in the next few minutes. If you've got any questions about property trends, where you should buy, mortgages, I'm very lucky. I've got two experts in the studio. You've heard them already. Lewis Allsop, who's group CEO of Allsop and Allsop, and Joe Phillips, Managing Director of Phillips and Walls Mortgage Brokers. What I like is that both of you have your surnames in the company names, which means we've gone to the top. <laughs> that feels good. That, is, that really does feel good. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. We are discussing property on the programme today, specifically property trends for 2024. And we're taking your questions because I've got two experts in the studio, Lewis Allsop, Group CEO of Allsop and Allsop, and Joe Phillips, who is Managing Director of Phillips and Walls Mortgage Brokers. Lovely to have you both in the studio. Questions are coming in, some of them really specific For example, Debbie, who's written in saying, I've just been quoted the following land department fee for me to buy an existing property in Ras Al-Khaimah, a 4% land department fee, which is coming in at 34 grand. Apparently, the buyer will incur both the 2% buyer fee and the 2% seller fee. Is that correct, Lewis, says Debbie, asks Debbie. I mean, it's, it's pretty much wrapped into the purchase price. I think any property that's sold in today's market the seller will pay a marketing fee to the agent, that's pre-agreed, and then the buyer will pay a fee to find the property. So when they go to buy a property hypothetically for a million dirhams, they'll pay 2%, but the seller wants their 2% paying as well. So it's sort of wrapped in. I think the buyers have to be aware they're going to pay a transfer fee and they're going to pay commission. That's just naturally going to happen. So I think that's part and parcel of buying a property. Okay, let's talk about when all these big developments that we've been hearing about, when they're actually going to be built because that surely is going to have an impact on the market and and prices ultimately are there any big deliveries coming soon yes off the top of my head i mean if you launch something the big launches happen for the last year or so let's yeah. say damak lagoons um let's talk about these master projects like that even talal gaff talal gaff launched three or four years ago it's only start people starting to move in now so this is the problem in the market that I think is going to happen. There is a lag of handovers to new people. So what I mean by that is people are flying in, they're looking for a home. People are talking about these launches, but they're not physically able to move in for probably three years, the big developments coming up. So there's just going to be pressure on people wanting to buy. And I can't think off the top of my head of any super developments. that you, that you that, Could you think of any? I can't think. The only one is Talal Al Gaff, which yeah. is handing over. The, uh, other than that, I can't think of anything that's. So we're talking twenty twenty seven before yeah. there's going to be a glut, it would, and will there be a glut in twenty twenty seven? Do you think? I like the word glut. I think that basically they'll already be snapped up. I think mm. that people will have already, you know, bought off plan at that point. I don't think that you know you might find that the secondary market you might have a couple of people who have maybe got a couple of distressed sales or something because they haven't been able to meet their payment plan but I think what you'll find and this is what we're seeing a lot of people are looking down the off-plan market route and that you know they're not going to be able to buy at that point directly from the developer in three or four years time because it's already this is quite daunting for someone who's not on I'm not on the ladder yet Mm. and I'm waiting for the glut so I can join the ladder because I want the prices to come down first give you a cheat sheet there is no glut coming like (laughs) Dubai Dubai is like a cocktail I mean you've got to look at this business is moving into 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 the city there are people moving into the city. There are people like sportsmen, tech. There's so many well-known people that I personally know that have said 
right, the weather's not good where I am, or the US is not in a good place, the UK is not. And Dubai, whenever something happens, this could be geopolitical, this could be taxation, Dubai seems to be the place where people gravitate to. Mm. So I think that you're not going to find any slowdown anytime soon. We're seeing a lot of self-employed people coming over, setting up. We have to be, obviously, the, with the mortgages, you've got to have the company running for at least 18 months before you can get a mortgage. But we are seeing so many self-employed people wanting to start up companies here from the UK, mm. from the US, everything like that. And they can't get the mortgage at the moment, but we're putting them in, in line for when it is. But we don't know whether those property prices are going to be up another 10% in 18 months' time. So you're kind of in a stuck situation at the moment with that. Well, we've been talking about the property trends. What about mortgage trends? Mm. Obviously, a big topic for the business breakfast, interest rates coming down this year, yeah. allegedly. Have you seen any impacts on the market uh, well, on, what, on what rates people are getting now, for yeah, example? Yeah, at the beginning of the year, obviously, the banks have got their massive targets that they've got to hit. They've started bringing the interest rates down, but it's more for longer term fixed rates. So, you know, the Fed are announcing in at the end of January, they think that they're going to hold. But come March, there is possibly going to see some interest rate cuts. So the banks are already foreseeing that happening. And what they're doing is that they're putting their one on two year fixed rates higher than their three or four. Sorry, their three or five year fixed rates because they want people tied in for three to five years because they know that those rates are going to come down. But, you know, the lowest rate at the moment on the market is 4.19 with a salary transfer for three years. If you're looking at a one year fixed rate, then that goes up to nearly 5%. So they know that these interest rates are going to come down, which is why people, you know, are paying more if they want to fix just for one year. I think anybody listening to this and talk about percentage in first time, but it's quite hard to understand. But if you bought a two million dirham property two years ago, your interest rate would have been nearly 7%. Mm. It's now going to be 4.1. The difference is at 7%, it was 11,800. At 4%, you're nearly talking 8,200. So you're saving so much money month to month. And that's not talking about the affordability purpose. It's just your repayment. So it's a massive difference. Massive. I mean, that... In, that's essentially an injection of cash for every single individual because they're saving so much money each month. Yeah, and that's only on going variable. to... I mean, that's going to put pressure again on the market, though, isn't it? Because yeah. more people are going to be able to afford... It's only going to put it up. But the banks are being still very clever because... Um, Debt burden ratio, we were talking about this off air, is 50%. So somebody's income, you can take 50% into account, minus any liabilities such as loans and everything like that. But the banks are still using a higher stress rate. So the rate might be 4.19, but some banks will go up to 9.7 on the stress rate to make sure that that affordability is there if the rates go up. So those aren't coming down anytime soon. And we thought that that would happen, that these stress rates would start coming down because the rates are coming down. But the banks are still being very cautious on that for people's affordability. Well, they don't want a repeat of 2008, Correct. 2009. And they're being clever. Yeah, absolutely. Did you feel, I mean, we've got about a, a minute left with, with both of you, but do you think that those days are properly over now? 100%. Yeah. Um, you've got to take into consideration when you talk about the market, in 2008, people were doing the buyback schemes 10% down, 90% on completion. There are so many people that are sitting on so much capital that they've made in property. Developers are taking 60% to, at the front end and 40% at the back. There's so much cash on the bottom of the uh, of Dubai market. It's in a very healthy place. Yeah, I totally agree. Absolutely. I mean, I don't see it changing anytime soon. And You've seen the ups and downs, Lewis, I have. And, you know, there's more regulation in the market. You know, the banks have got more regulation with the central bank. And there's not that runaway mentality anymore. You know, people No one is going to lose their 
shirt. It's shirt, not skirt, isn't it? Shirt, shirt. I think skirt. it is. Yeah. So no one is going to lose their shirt. Skirt. Uh, skirt. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we will head over to the ARN News Centre for the news. Uh, but thank you very much to both of you, Lewis Allsop, Group CEO of Allsop and Allsop, Joe Phillips, Managing Director of Phillips and Walls Mortgage Brokers. That went so well. I think we should do it monthly. Thank we you very much indeed <laughs> to you. both of you. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Earlier this week, a US spacecraft launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida to try to perform a controlled landing on the moon. Here we go. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Ignition. And liftoff of the Falcon 9 rocket on the Starlink 6-35 mission. We promised that that was the actual liftoff uh, because it is aiming to become the first American mission in literally half a century to complete a soft touchdown on the lunar service. Uh, They have a remit to study the moon ahead of human missions later this decade. Of course, the human missions sound immensely exciting. We heard earlier this week that there's a strong possibility that UAE astronauts will be involved in those human missions because the UAE is participating uh, and providing a special sort of door lock system. However, with this initial aircraft, there are no humans on board. There's just, um, there's a lot of stuff though. There's five specific scientific instruments. There's a number of small rovers and also, intriguingly, several cultural items, including, importantly, a plaque created by Dubai-based British artist Sasha Jaffrey. And I'm delighted to say that Sasha has actually joined me in the studio this morning to talk a little bit more about that piece of work, which is called We Rise Together with the Light of the Moon. Sasha Jaffrey, welcome to the studio. How Hello, are you? Hello, Georgia. Great to see you. Happy New Year to you. Good and to have you. you here. Thank you. Banging away to start the year with a with a launch to the moon. Um, what? How did you get involved with this project? Um, so it, it was about two and a half years ago. Uh, I was approached by Spacebit. Uh, they're a UK German company um, that do sort of you know space engineering uh, and um, NASA and a company called Selenian, who do art curation in space. And they said, we're doing a moon mission with NASA, landing on the moon for NASA's 50th anniversary since they last did it, um, with uh, Apollo in 72. Um, And we want to land on the moon this year for the 50th anniversary. Missed it by two weeks, but it's still... That's okay. Yeah, it's okay. We'll we'll give them that in half a century. (laughs) Yeah, And, uh, and, and we want to land the first artwork. And we've chosen you, which was quite a big, a big honor and all a bit surreal. I can I can imagine. I mean, there was there was probably an immediate sort of problem in a hand because your pieces of art are really big, huge. Yeah. In yeah. fact, I mean that's sort of really what you're huge. known yeah. for. Um, there's not much space on rockets, so how did you work with with that? So that that's the tricky bit. I I created a work of art, which I'll tell you about later, um, but it's quite special, and I created it as I normally would on canvas, and then I had to translate that onto a plaque, let's call it, like a plate, which was made of this very secret moon-resilient alloy. So lots of metals melted together, including gold, including the same metal they use for the nose of the rocket. Um, So they could could create a plate that could withstand the the conditions of the moon. 
And the conditions of the moon are, se- are pretty severe, obviously. So you go up to, I think, nearly 200 degrees um, in the day, plus 200, and about minus 190 at night. Um, that's severe. But then you've got radiation, you've got gravi- gravity issues, you've got meteorites hitting the moon the whole time regularly, hence the craters. Um, so it had to, NASA said, we can't corroborate this as the first official artwork on the moon unless you can prove that this can last eternally on the moon. In human terms, that's a thousand years. So Spacebit created this plate, took about two years. Um, Then it was about another year of testing it in the various conditions before they could confirm it could last eternally on the moon's surface. I mean, that, that's awesome. That, yeah, I mean, that, that's cool. that, the fact that it's got to be up there for a thousand years. Yeah. And, and it's very <laughs> relevant for the current situation with the craft because actually it doesn't look like they're going to make a soft landing, does no. it? Sadly, yeah. we've heard in the last few hours. Yeah, there was an update this morning, which was, which was good, actually, the update, because um, we've had some intrepidation. I think it makes it more exciting. The fact that it just shows you that it's not easy to land on the moon. No. We, we've begun to think that, oh, yeah, we're going up to the moon. No, no problem. It's incredibly difficult to land. Um, and it is looking 90% like a hard landing. Um, that means a crash, by the yeah. way, in, just so you know. It's the way I've that done, they say we're going to crash. I know, I've done enough space interviews to yeah. go, hey, they're crashing. You know the terminology. <laughs> yeah. I love the way they don't say we're going to crash. They say it's a hard landing. I love it. It's brilliant. Um, but yeah, they basically, they can still hit the point. So at the moment, as of this morning, um, they are 200,000 miles from Earth. Okay. They're 84% of the journey to the lunar surface. So that was put out by Astrobotic um, this morning. And they felt quite confident about getting to that position you need to be where you can then hit the landing, um, which is great news. So then it's a hard landing, which sadly means that a lot of the scientific payloads won't make it. They will be destroyed on impact. Um, A few might, but the rover, it's unlikely will be deployed, etc. Stuff like that. But the first artwork on the lunar surface will still land. It'll just land hard. It will land hard. But it will be, be there. It'll, it'll be, be there. there. Yeah. It'll be at the bottom of a, a, of of a, a trench, <laughs> of a crater. There's something sort of quite poetic there about is. that in some way. I think so. But, but the, reason, the reason why that is so relevant is that there is a bit of a space race within the artistic mm. community, isn't there? And, and you are a world-renowned artist. We're very lucky to have you here in Dubai. And we're very lucky that you're so happy to sort of do interviews as well because we get a lot of access to you here at, mm. in, in the radio station. But... But, it, you know, it's a big deal to be the first artist up there, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> it's really surreal. I can't really... It doesn't feel real. It is a really big deal when you think about it. Like, to put the first artwork on the moon is a big deal because you can't do it on your own. You've got to create partners. The partners have to believe in you. Um, there's a lot of reconnaissance that needs to be done. So our partners are Spacebit, Astrobotic, who do all the scientific payloads, all the engineering for NASA... NASA themselves, NASA CLPS, who do the payloads, um, do all the, the research, uh, a company called Selenian, but then also Jeff Bezos with his um, uh, Blue Origin, which are the power for the Vulcan rocket. So oh, there's a wow. lot of, and ULA, um, who are United Launch Alliance. So they're all the partners that have to come together, believe in me, believe that this is worth doing, because it costs a lot of money to, to well, do this. <laughs> this is what I want to ask you, is obviously there is cultural significance and and it's widely perceived as culturally significant to send up 
sort of slightly random things to the moon, yeah. including pieces of art. Yeah. Why, why is it important? Well, I can tell you why it's important from my point of view. Yes. So I think, you know, there's obviously questions around why are we spending so much money on space exploration when we don't look after our own planet? And I think that's a fair question. And I think we should continue to ask ourselves that, continue to question ourselves. Um, that's important. But I think there is purpose in it. I think you you help with aspiration, inspiration, feelings of exploration in the next generation. That's not a bad thing to encourage that feeling of aspiration. Um, that's that's a good thing. Then you've got the scientific side of it, whereby the moon is a huge effect on the Earth, huge effect tidally um, in all sorts of ways, you know, that we know and ways that we don't yet. So if through the scientific payloads we can learn more about the moon, we will learn more about Earth and I think we're going to gather important data that can help us. So that's worth doing. Um, I think... For me, the reason why I really got inspired and excited about this project, I believe that we're made of energy. We communicate at our most poignant, at our most powerful through energy. But our energy is made of our intentions. And when our intentions become questionable, financially driven, socially driven, ego driven, um, agenda filled, we emit static. Energy can't transmit through static. Hence, the breakdown of humanity in simple terms. That's sort of what I believe. And I have sort of focused my work as an artist on trying to reconnect humanity by purifying my intentions, by laying paint with pure intention that can vibrate at a higher frequency that can hopefully enter the soul and change consciousness. It's a big ask, um, <laughs> but I'll keep trying. And I had this opportunity. I thought, OK, wow, if I can create a work of art that... Basically what it shows, it's in a heart motif. I laser etched it onto this plate, which wasn't easy. Um, did it a few times before I got it right. And it shows two figures entwined, um, hence that sort of symbol of the reconnection of humanity through these two figures. And around them in a heart motif are 88 hearts um, and our globe, our earth, flourishing with flourishing flora and fauna and that sense of conservation, sustainability, that sense of a reconnection of humanity and how our world could be if we reconnected um, through energy and pure intention. So then I thought, wow, this is really powerful because at, at night, our Earth, the only natural light we have is from our moon. And if when our moon shines light on our Earth, i.e. from the darkness comes the light, if when that happens, it's shining a light through my artwork, which is a symbol of the reconnection of humanity with intention, that could be symbolically really powerful and it could create an energy that can change consciousness. That's the ambition. And if it sits there, I would love to feel that that might have worked. It's a lot bigger than I realised. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, there's a lot exactly. behind it. There's George, you know me, there's, there. there's always a lot behind there's it. There's always a lot I don't on. just randomly throw uh, stuff around. Yeah, I, 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 hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't realised that's where we were going to go, but that makes this all the more interesting. And I have to say, <laughs> I will put a picture up of, of the plaque because it is absolutely beautiful and, and it is it is intriguing to think of it up there on the moon. Uh, and I'm very, very grateful for you to take the time to come in and talk to us about it on the agenda. So thank you for your time. I thank really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It. Lovely it's to see you. It's been a pleasure. And we'll keep an eye. You know, we will all now be Fingers keeping crossed. an eye on that, at that aircraft. Who knows? Maybe they'll manage to... to soft land. Soft land. <laughs> not crash. Not crash. Not crash. <laughs> <laughs>
Welcome back to the programme. Right, uh, important and serious topic alert, because with more than half the world set to go to the polls this year, it's, I think it's fair to say that 2024 is hotting up to be potentially pretty contentious. Uh, and then if you throw in things like, I suppose, you know, the mounting threat of extreme weather due to global warming, and of course, the number of conflicts cropping up in the world, the next 12 months start to look fairly worrying. And I haven't even mentioned AI yet, but we will. Don't worry. Um, So what are the greatest risks for 2024? Well, luckily for us, the World Economic Forum has surveyed 1,500 risk experts ahead of their annual meeting in Davos in Switzerland next week. And a little earlier, I spoke to the lead author of that study. His name is John Scott. He is head of sustainability risk for Zurich Insurance Group. And he basically started by explaining how and, and why they carry out this report. So we use every year this thing called the Global Risk Perception Survey, which is sent out to uh, over a thousand and in fact this year 1500 global risk experts from a really wide and diverse range of backgrounds, some academics, some in government, some in business, and, and also diverse in terms of its geographic distribution from all the major regions around the world. And that uh, really helps us get a sense of what people's perceptions of global risks are and how they're changing. And of course, there's lots of data we can also get on risk, but it's very insightful to hear what people really think in their minds, how these risks have changed. And you do it every year. You've been doing it for quite a while now. Have you noticed anything this year, any new risks that have been identified? Yes, we have. I think for the first time this year, we've really seen the risk of misinformation and disinformation come to the fore, in particular in the two-year time frame, where we've seen it actually as the number one risk, surpassing even severe weather as as the second most highly rated almost severe risk in a two-year time horizon. But for for this World Economic Forum Global Risk Report, this 10-year view is really special because it gives us a chance to see how these risks might really develop over time. And what we've seen in recent years, and, and this year is also the case, that the top four risks are all populated by environmental risks. So risks related typically to climate change or to nature. And they're clearly in the minds of a lot of people, and particularly younger people who respond to uh, this, the Global Risk Perception Survey, they're, they're the risks that are going to play out most in the 10-year in period. But going back to misinformation and disinformation, it's the first risk other than environmental risks to come up, and it's, rated, it's at number five on the list. Uh, and so we see these tech risks of um, uh, cybersecurity, misinformation, disinformation, and, and in the long run, or in the 10-year period, the, the dystopian consequences potentially from artificial intelligence and technology associated with that. I was wondering when you were going to mention artificial intelligence, because it's fair to say it's dominated the headlines for the last 12 months. And certainly a praise on my mind, it certainly preys on the listeners' minds. Do you sense that there is a, a fear around how AI could be used? Well, let me say, first of all, that uh, generative AI has been an incredible opportunity. I mean, there's there's really good things that can come from the deployment of artificial intelligence in the right sort of way. And the the first versions of it we're seeing around generative AI are just incredible. I mean, anybody who has to research any topic to talk to people about, just get on your favorite generative AI system and and suddenly there's a, a wealth of insight there, which... You know, even a year or two ago, you'd be struggling with the sort of standard internet search systems to, to get that level of insight. 
Now, of course, it's not perfect. It requires some kind of human insight to check with what it's coming up with, whether it's sense or, or nonsense. But really, it's so effective now that it's very difficult to distinguish. In fact, of course, many people are talking about creating mandatory sort of labeling of AI or generative AI created content so that the consumers can see what is real and what, what's not real. And that's really important in terms of building trust. And that's the foundation of this misinformation, disinformation risk. In the long run, the big question, of course, is how does this artificial intelligence develop? And we've seen incredible advances in technology. The drawbacks, if you like, are probably around affecting the world of work in terms of jobs. It, it won't just make jobs more productive, but some jobs might disappear entirely. So that's a lot of the fear. And of course, in more dystopian futures, it might be that if we allow artificial intelligence to control really important systems, and especially I think here in the uh, defense world, letting computers make decisions, it becomes a bit like science fiction, the computers take over. I think we'll, we're a long way from that, but people are aware of those risks. And it's just really important that there's always a human in the loop. Now, I know you also consult people on how they're feeling and certainly in 2023 there was a feeling of vulnerability uh, has that sense continued into 2024 I, I think it has and i think that's for a number of reasons i think you know we saw through in the past four years really with uh, the covid19 pandemic and then closely followed by the russian invasion of ukraine and now we see it with the, the conflict in gaza that, that just creates great uncertainty for people. And I think we've seen it in the response of businesses to localised supply chains, not, not so much reliant on global supply chains now. And, and, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so there is a sense that, that countries are sort of hunkering down a little bit, which is, of course, challenging because global collaboration is extremely helpful and has been the foundation or the bedrock of addressing global risk resiliency. But increasingly now, I think we're looking towards some of the solutions which are about collaboration, collective action, and even indeed individual action, which at a big enough scale actually can really move the needle. You mentioned confidence earlier in our conversation. Is there a confidence among people that the governments are the right governments to be dealing with the problems that we're facing? It, it, it's very interesting that you mentioned misinformation earlier as well, because we've got 60 national elections coming up in the next 12 months. So if people aren't confident in their governments, then we then we could see quite a lot of changes in, in the coming year. Yes, I mean, it's something like 3 billion people are going to the polls. You know, that's nearly half the global population in the next 24 months. So... I think, yes, concerns about misinformation and disinformation, that links back to my comments about artificial intelligence and, and generative AI. You know, it's very difficult for people to tell what they're hearing is the truth or not, whether it's deep fake video or whether it's in text that they read. And of course, you know, social media amplifies that in the way that it operates in terms of encouraging people to keep viewing things that match their worldviews. And that just embeds a way of thinking. So I think you're right. It, it is really challenging in this year of elections that are coming up. How do people have confidence in their governments? And of course, I think it's, it's a challenge for incumbents, politicians, because people see what they've done. They perhaps sometimes don't like what they've done. And, and therefore, it's easier to to vote in someone new who they might not even know or they just hope would do something differently. And of course, that's very challenging when we often need continuity to address long-term risks, global risks in particular. Uh, constantly changing government sometimes makes it difficult to have policy continuity and the certainty that business and individuals really need to get on with their lives. 
John Scott there, Head of Sustainability Risk for Zurich Insurance Group. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to The Agenda. Right, we are all, I think it's fair to say, trying to go green, trying to be a bit more eco-friendly. And that means we need more batteries. Um, because often instead of burning fossil fuels, we use, you know, one by one, we use electricity and cars, all of that type of thing. And therefore we need more minerals. And one potential source lies at the bottom of our seas. And now Norway has become the very first country in the world to approve deep sea mining in its waters. Sounds good, but it is not that simple because conservationists say mining the oceans could be devastating to marine environments that are already under threat from global warming. And by Norway sort of pushing ahead, they are putting themselves at odds with dozens of nations that are calling for an outright ban on the practice. So what does Norway's decision mean for the rest of the world? Is it going to sort of start a bun fight, so to speak? Let's find out. I'm joined on now on the line now by Sean Owen, who is Executive Director of the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition. Sean, thanks so much for joining us on the line were you surprised by this decision by Norway? Hi, good morning, and thank you for inviting us this morning. Um, were we surprised? So the these discussions have been continuing in Norway for some time now, and there was actually a hearing in October. So we've been aware for a number of months that this vote was likely to come up in the Norwegian parliament. Um, what is surprising about the way the vote went is that there was tremendous pressure building in Norway over the last year or more from research institutes, academics, civil society, scientists, environmental experts, all saying to the government, this is a bad idea. Uh, and, and equally, as you noted in your introduction, there's been a, a similar trend of calls for a moratorium, calls for a ban on this practice f- around the world as well. So it is, it is surprising and, and more importantly disappointing that Norway, the vote in Norway went the way it did this week. You can understand the enthusiasm of, uh, of countries, of miners themselves, because the, the general gist is that there's these nodules just lying on the sea floor, and all you need to do is quite literally pick them up and they're stuffed full of all the sort of rare metals that we need to make lots of the things, lots of the electronics that we use every single day. What's so bad about picking them up? So first of all, that description of what is there and and how it would be extracted is complete greenwash. Um, that is very much the the speculators' line of to to try and convince the world that this is a good investment to make. The reality is actually that vast vast areas tens of thousands of kilometers of the deep seabed would have to be strip mined in order to remove these nodules. These nodules are tiny ecosystems in and of themselves that have formed over millions of years. So this is not a just pluck up the rocks kind of scenario. It is a huge, it would be opening the world's lar- the largest mines that the world has ever seen, which would have devastating irreversible damage impacts on the 
floor of the deep seabed, as well as impacts in the water column itself, because there would be a tremendous amount of, of sediment plumes that would be released in the process that could potentially uh, uh, hinder the carbon sequestration capacity of our oceans, could uh, interfere with fisheries uh, and, and biodiversity at large, which is one of the reasons that among the groups that have come out against this decision in Norway this week are, are the fishing, is the fishing sector in Norway. So there is a suggestion from Norway that they are being cautious and they're not actually going to issue any licenses until they've done further environmental research. Is that enough do you do you worry that the world is going to head in the same direction that other countries having seen this example will go well hang on a second we don't want norway to you know to get all these resources we should be going for them as well so what's one of the things that's interesting about the decision in norway this week is that very little is actually known about what is down there in the northeast atlantic in 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 this area the size of the united kingdom that they've opened up in in their own and in their own waters and and some international waters on Norway's continental shelf, the the thinking is that there are metals such as cobalt and copper and scandium down there, but they don't know how much. So what they've opened it up for is exploration. But but the reality is that this exploration is likely to take 15 to 20 years to really deliver the results so that we understand what's down there. And in the meantime, battery technology is likely to be have moved so quickly that these metals are unlikely to be needed. So it is there. There is a question. It, it, it the feeling is that this vote has really been primarily oriented at, at stimulating, mobilizing capital um, and investment toward the exploration. The, the economics don't add up for exploitation ever really going forward. There's all sorts of fascinating battery technology out there. Sodium iron batteries are already close to being on the market. Northvolt is a is a Swedish battery maker that is investing wholly in that. Companies such as Tesla, there's a Chinese battery maker that are that have moved away from cobalt and are gradually moving away from most of these other metals that that are would be found in the deep sea. Really fascinating topic. Uh, and so I suppose, I mean, I've got about 30 seconds left with you. Do you feel hopeful that the seas won't be strip mined in this way? I do, in the sense that Norway is really going against the trend. There are, as you said, dozens of countries now calling for a moratorium, and that, that number grows every month. Uh, and, and equally, companies and investors are coming out saying, we don't need these metals for a, a just green transition. Sean, always fantastic to have you on the radio. Thank you so much for explaining uh, those that argument from, from your perspective. Uh, Sean Owen, Executive Director of the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there, welcome back to the agenda. My goodness me, only seven minutes for the next topic and it's a good one. Uh, let's give you a number, first of all, a statistic. Aviation is responsible for 2% of global energy-related CO2 emissions. Bit of a problem, but we all still want to keep travelling. So sustainability scientists are desperately searching for different ways in which they can make jet fuel more 
sustainable, less carbon intensive. There's lots of talk about biofuels that are used, you know, that use plants. But the problem is that could end up pushing up food prices. Another alternative is sort of used cooking oil. But that's like enough for about four planes. Um, There just isn't enough of it to go around. I I exaggerate, but you, you get the gist. So imagine our interest when we spotted a story about a UK company that is making fuel out of Drum roll, please. Human feces. Yep, we had to get them on. Uh, very close to lunch, but never mind. And I am delighted to say that the CEO of Firefly Green Fuels, James Highgate, joins me on the line now all the way from Gloucestershire in the United Kingdom, which is a rural bit of the UK. Uh, James, I've got to ask you, well, Happy New Year first, but but what Happy led New you? Happy New Year, Julia. <laughs> Thank you. Let's start on a, on a high note. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, what led you to consider sewage as uh, as an option? Okay, so it's um, maybe find a bit of a background. We'll 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 explain that. So we've worked in sustainable biofuels for for over twenty years, and and the, one of the biggest challenge areas, if not the biggest challenge area, is finding suitable feedstock like you say it needs to be a feedstock that's abundant it needs to be a feedstock that is fully biogenic so from a a, a, you know has no fossil um components in it um which actually did quite quickly lead us to sewage you know it's everywhere we're all uh, we're all contributing to the feedstock supply every day some people twice a day you know it's 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 you know there's a lot of it around and it's global um, the big challenge with it is that it's wet. And I think that's where our, the innovations we've been working on um, to actually make it a very efficient way to convert that into a what, what, what is a true drop-in hydrocarbon fuel, but without the fossil carbon, um, is, is so interesting. And I think offers really good potential, not only in the UK, but actually in areas such as the UAE, where there aren't very many other sort of biological feedstocks of, of, available for use. I I still don't sort of get the scientific link between human poo and how you make it fuel. I, I mean, I, I it was probably because I don't understand, you know, the 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 table, you know, the CO two table. Fine, fine. All right, just to put it, <laughs> a very simple way to look at it is, you know, fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are um, you know, biological material that's that's broken down over over many millions of years under you know under high pressures and, and sort of moderate temperatures in the earth's crust and you end up with um producing a various range of of um of, of uh, fossil products such as you know such as um hydrocarbon fuels coal etc um what we're doing is is um optimizing a process which actually uses the water in the in 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 that material put it under a high pressure and it basically water is kind of a weird chemical anyway, but you put it under high pressure, it acts quite aggressively, breaks down the material there into um, what we find is a, it is what we call a bio crude, which is very similar to a fossil crude um, and a biochar. And the biochar is a, um, you know, the other, uh, you, you've got you know, some, some um, carbon in there and, and other, other minerals, et cetera. And that's actually quite a, a useful co-product because that can be used as a soil improver. So basically, it's not too dissimilar to what happens in the Earth's crust. We do it in seconds rather than millions of years. I mean, it sounds a fantastic solution out here in the UAE. And I know that, for example, the country is very enthusiastic about finding sustainable aviation fuels. Obviously, it's a trade hub so um, and, and an airport hub. So if we manage to figure out here, then lots of planes could come in and refuel here, for example. Yeah. Is, 
could it be scaled? You know, what are the hurdles at the moment? So, um, yes, you know, it, basically we're in this because it, we, we, we truly believe this can be scaled and it can be a global um, solution for decarbonising aviation. Um, so when you actually look at the downstream part of the process, it's very similar to 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 oil refining there's some clever catalysts etc we're using there are some different things because the crude is, is slightly different but that's something that there is a um a known base of of, of engineers that can build these these technologies and um, the, the the challenge is really sort of upstream is, is securing the feedstock supply um we're very focused on the uk at the moment um where we believe we can the uk has about um but if you go it's about 57 million tonnes of sewage a year. The, the product we use is at the end of the, 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 the process is about 8 million tonnes of that. Um, and so, you know, it, there's potentially a, a lot of SAF that can be made. A, a little rule of thumb is each person could be able to produce about four to five litres of sustainable aviation fuel per year from their sewage. So it's quite an easy way to scale up. Um, to, to the numbers. In addition to the sustainable aviation fuel, you do end up with a with a number of fuels. So you have like a gasoline fraction, etc., as you would do in a if you're refining a a fossil crude. Um, we already do have um, we, we we do we already do have a uh, a, a, a very uh, solid offtake agreement with um, with Wizz Air, um, who also you know a local airline for for you guys and expanding in the region. Um, that's for 525,000 tons. Of fuel, which is which is fantastic. It's great to see that um, you know airlines such as Wizz Air and you know and these are ultra low cost airlines are seeing this as in sustainability as a real you know something real that has to has to happen and are committing and financially committing to make these things grow. So, um, I yeah, didn't realise that yes, you had Wizz Air on board. That that I mean that that adds a whole other local angle to the story, which I was unaware oh, of. That's fantastic news. So Wizz Air are buying fuel from you, or research, or paying for research in your um, project. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no. Wizz Air were, um, are an investor in the company, and we have a um, a very solid offtake agreement with them um, for for a lot a lot of fuel over 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 a significant period of time, with the aim to use that to help. Um, finance the first of a kind facility. So we are, you know, this is actually all quite carefully planned out, and you, you know, we will be hearing more news about this first of a kind facility soon in in, in the UK. But yes, this is very replicable, and yes, we do have uh, an eye on the region as as somewhere where we should be doing it, and a a large customer already there who's looking to grow in the region using this sustainable fuel. Absolutely fascinating stuff. James, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the radio. We really appreciate your time. James Highgate there, CEO of Firefly Green Fuels. They're a company based in the UK, but it sounds like that won't last for long. We like people to base themselves out here. Uh, So we'll bring you over, James. Uh, It's great weather, I'm telling you. It's really lovely. It looks lovely, though. The sun's just coming up here. Yeah, yeah, it's chilly there at the moment. Come over here. It's fun. (laughs) You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Right, it's time to turn our attention to sports. Uh, Producer Jen has managed to track down our editor of sports, Chris McCarty, and he sent this report on all the latest action, both on and off the pitch. Good morning, Georgia. Happy Thursday. Let's start, as we always seem to do these days, with football, a couple of games to look back on from last night. Let's start in Saudi Arabia, an absolute humdinger. 
as I'd like to say, between Atletico Madrid and Real Madrid. Yep, that's right, that's two Spanish teams competing in the Spanish Super Cup. It was the semi-finals last night, and it was Real Madrid who emerged victorious in eight Goal thriller. Yes, extra time and all needed. It finished Real Madrid 5, Atletico Madrid 3. Real Madrid forced to come back on a couple of occasions to uh, eventually win this one. Five different goal scorers as well for Real Madrid. It was in, in effect, it was their bench strength that saw them through and they have booked a place in that final. Who will they play? Will Barcelona in action a little later tonight? Can they book their place in what would be the dream final? El Clasico over there in Saudi Arabia. Carlo Angelotti's men march on. Commiserations to Diego Simeone. As for the other big one last night, EFL Cup action over in England. We spoke yesterday about Chelsea losing to Middlesbrough. The second semi-final saw Liverpool take on Fulham. And Liverpool, they trailed in this one for a long time. Fulham taking the lead in that first half through Ovillian. But then a couple of substitutes again making the difference. Cody Gakpo and Darwin Nunes stepping off the bench. It was Gakpo who added his name to the score sheet. Diego Jota, the other. Real Madrid, uh, sorry, Liverpool, uh, two. Fulham won a great result that in the first leg. Of course, they're only halfway home. The Liverpool have to go to the cottage to complete this job if they look to book their place in the League Cup final over there in England. Other stories to talk about. Well, let's talk American football. We don't do it often, but Pete Carroll, a legend of the coaching world, announced yesterday to much fanfare. There was plenty of tears as well that he is stepping down in Seattle. Seahawks coach. He'll take up an advisor role. He's the man that led them to Super Bowl success. He may even be remembered as the man who made the call to throw as opposed to run that handed the New England Patriots their fifth Super Bowl success in the Bill Belichick era a few years back. But what a legend Pete Carroll is. And finally, let's talk a little bit of golf. The Dubai Invitational is up and running this morning down there at the Dubai Creek Golf and Yacht Club. And oh, we're excited for this one. Rory McIlroy leads a stellar field. Plenty of big-name amateurs. Dwight York, you've got John Elway, you've got Larry Fitzgerald Jr. Just three of the sporting titans will be taking part as well. So cracking crowds expected. It is the Dubai Invitational. It is the perfect appetizer ahead of next week's Hero Dubai Desert Classic. Right, that gets you bang up today, Georgia, with all the major sporting stories of the day. I'll catch up with you soon. Cheers, Georgia. Chris McCarty not sounding on tip-top form, but that just makes me even more grateful that he sent through uh, that sports report. He is our head of sport. Uh, he is back on your airwaves from 5pm, hopefully, uh, alongside Sonal and Robbie with Offscript. It is your drive time show. Uh, make sure you tune in. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.